Hey everybody, it's so good to see you again. Before we jump into the message today, I do want to let you know that next weekend we are continuing our study in the book of Acts, but we'll be kicking off a brand new series, and the title of that series is actually called Detours. Now, I believe this is going to be a really important series because most people that I talk to these days say that 2020 has felt like one big, gigantic detour in their life. They, they had plans for their family. They had plans for their business or their career. They had plans in a lot of areas of their life. And then 2020 happened and said, no, we're going to have to change all of the plans. And you've been living on a detour ever since. And so we're going to be looking next week at Acts chapter 16. And there's some powerful lessons in there for us that will help us better understand, hey, what's the purpose of detours in our lives? And how do we navigate those really, really well? And maybe even make sense of some of the detour that we have been in. So I want you to be here. If you have people who are on the struggle bus, I want you to bring them with you. They'll be really glad that you did. Today, we're concluding a short series that we've been in called Generation Next, and this is a series that is pretty near and dear to my heart. It's kind of a big deal to me. The entire reason that I wanted to go into ministry is because my dad left when I was 12 years old, and so from 12 uh, really to about 17 years old, I made a lot of decisions that I regretted, and at that time in my life, God went to work on me through some godly men in my church who stepped into my life even when my dad was stepping out of my life. And because of the influence that those men had on my life, they really did help me walk with Jesus Christ and learn from a lot of the mistakes that I've made. In fact, I don't think that's just my story. I think that's the story of a lot of people. In fact, if you look at people between the ages of 12, maybe all the way up to 22 or 24, you see a disturbing trend in our world today among the next generation. Maybe this is your story. You grew up in church. Your parents took you to church every time the doors were open. Some of you were like me. You were there on Sunday morning. You were there on Sunday night. You were there on Wednesday night. Any other stuff that was going on, your parents had you in church. And even though you were in church, you didn't get a lot out of church. The messages may not have felt all that relevant to your life. Maybe they felt like they were messages designed for different people or older people or people at a different stage. Even though you were in church, you didn't have a lot of relationships with people who were in the church. And so you graduated high school and you weren't mad. You just didn't see the point. And so you stopped going to church for a while, and you kind of started your new life, and as you started new life, you started new habits, and those habits did not involve church, really didn't involve walking with Jesus, but something changed at some point in your life, which is why you're here today. You probably woke up like most people one day, and you had a family of your own, and you looked at your kids, and you thought, I need help, right? You looked at those little rugrats that you were raising and you thought to yourself, man, if I don't get them in church, they're going to turn into little hellions, right? You thought if I don't get myself into church, I may kill those little hellions. And so you came back to the church and in that season of your life, you realized there is real value in a real relationship with Jesus Christ, Doing life with Jesus really does grow you in integrity and character. It calls you to a higher standard of living. And as you thought about your life, as you thought about your struggles, as you thought about your children, you thought, you know what? 
We need to make faith a priority in our family once again. And while I love that people come back, i got to tell you, I hate to see them walk away during what I believe are some of those critical seasons in their life when they're going to make decisions that will determine much of what the future of their life really looks like. When people walk away from church, or even more important than that, when they don't make faith in Jesus or a relationship with Jesus a priority in their life, they start to struggle, and inevitably those struggles lead to suffering. And so here at Mosaic, we want to be a church that always invests in the next generation. So we are the kind of church who says we're going to put our money where our mouth is, right? So we make a really big deal out of Mo Kids here at Mosaic. It's a place for kids from the day they're born until the day they get through elementary school. We're going to invest heavily in staff. We're going to invest heavily in creating a dynamic environment where those kids love love coming to church and learning about Jesus Christ. We do the same thing in student ministry. Look, we're even investing heavily in an organization in town called Young Life. Young Life doesn't even have anything to do with Mosaic Church, but because Young Life is a Christian organization that's investing heavily in the next generation, then we're going to invest heavily in them because the next generation matters to God and the next generation should always matter to us. And yet what we know is we know that at some point in a person's faith journey, they start to struggle. And what we really believe at Mosaic is that the faith of the next generation, it will grow best, not just in the weekend service, but in a relationship. Inevitably, young people, if not all people, they will have questions and they will have real doubts in their life that they will struggle with that could derail or wreck their faith. Inevitably, young people, if not all people, they will face real temptations that could actually pull their heart away from Jesus and away from following God. Inevitably, young people, if not all people, they will have painful experiences in their life. And those painful experiences are so real and they're so deep, it starts to cause them to question God. Maybe they question the goodness of God. Maybe they question the very existence of God. But what we know about a person's faith journey is that they're going to experience all of these things and a whole lot more. And if all they have in their life is the weekend service, and I'm not addressing what's going on in their life at the exact time that it's all going on, then what we know will happen is they will find themselves in major trouble. They will find themselves suffering from what we could call a crisis of faith. And this is why we're calling people in this series to be in relationship with someone from the next generation. See, I believe that the greatest threat to a person's faith, it may never be addressed in the weekend service. But it could be immediately addressed if you were in the right kind of relationship, the kind of relationship where you can talk openly and honestly with a more mature follower of Jesus Christ. And yet there are a lot of Christians who make a very bad mistake of putting all their eggs into this one basket called the weekend service. And if the weekend service isn't addressing what you're dealing with at the exact time that you're dealing with, your faith is in trouble. A person's faith really does grow best 
in the context of a relationship. So last week, we're cruising through the end of Acts chapter 15, getting into Acts chapter 16, and we see these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, who were not just legendary figures of the New Testament. They were people who knew the importance of relationships. Now, we're going to look a little further at Paul and Barnabas today, but as we get into them, I want you to know they're two different men, and they have two different strengths, okay? Paul was always great at instructing people, but Barnabas, he was great at encouraging people. So think about Paul for just a minute. If you were to read through the New Testament, Paul writes a large portion of the New Testament, and the letters that he writes in the New Testament, they are letters that provide instruction to people. In some cases, he's writing letters of instruction to individuals like Timothy and Titus. In other cases, he's writing letters of instruction to churches or to church leaders. But what you see in Paul is that Paul was great at instructing people because part of the challenge in life is just knowing what to do. And if you're going to know what to do as you grow up in life, then what you need is you need someone who gives you instructions about life. It's why I believe Jesus came into the world and he was known primarily as rabbi. That word rabbi, it only means teacher. So why did Jesus come into the world and he spent most of his ministry teaching other people? Because he knew that part of the challenge of life is having instruction about how you're supposed to do life. So he spent a large portion of his life providing that kind of instruction. But listen, the other challenge in life is not just knowing what to do. The other challenge is actually having the courage to do the right thing. And that's where Barnabas was so great. In fact, if you were to go back to the fourth chapter in the book of Acts, we've already been there, so we're not going to go back. But if you were to look in verse 36, you would see that the name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. And so that's who Barnabas was, and being an instructor is who Paul was. That's what these men were because that's what mentoring requires. See, in life, it it is a matter of time before you will need instruction, but there will be other days in life when you need encouragement. There will be times when you don't know what to do, and there will be other times when you just need someone to give you the courage to do it. It's true of you, it's true of me, and listen, it is especially true for the next generation. And so I want us to look at Paul and Barnabas a little further today, and I want us to really see how they go about mentoring that creates such life transformation for the people that they mentor. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is what the text says. It says, Paul came to Derbe... And then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived. Timothy's a young man. His mother was Jewish and a believer, but his father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. They spoke well of this young man named Timothy. 
And so Paul wanted to take him along on the journey. He wanted to spend time with him. He wanted to invest in his life. He believed in him, so he wanted to hang with him. And so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, there's something that I want you to notice in this text about Timothy's family, the family that he grew up in. It's actually mentioned two different times. It's mentioned first in verse 1, then it's mentioned again in verse 3. The text tells us that Timothy's father was a Greek. So we think, okay, what's the big deal? What's the significance of that. If you uh, grew up in high school and you took Latin classes, or if you're familiar with Greek theology, then you might remember that people who were Greek, they didn't really believe that there was one God. They actually believed that there were many gods. They, they believed that there was a God for almost everything. In fact, if you were to go back in our study of the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 14, you would see a story about Paul and Barnabas who were actually in the same city then that they're in now. They were in Lystra. And while they were there, Paul and Barnabas, they healed a man who had been lame. And all of the people in this town, because it was predominantly a Greek culture, they believed that the Greek gods had come down to live among them. And so they looked at Barnabas, and they thought Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus, in Acts chapter 14, and they looked at the Apostle Paul, and they thought that the Apostle Paul was Hermes. And and this is the kind of Greek culture, this is the kind of theology that Timothy's dad would have grown up on. He, He was never a practicing Jew. Jesus Christ had come into the earth. He had lived an incredible life. He had performed all kinds of miracles. He had died a tragic death on the cross. He defeated death by literally being physically resurrected out of the grave. He made an appearance among hundreds of people over a period of 40 different days. And even then, Timothy's dad made a decision not to follow Jesus Christ. Every indicator about Timothy's father is that he was not a man of Christian faith. But his mother... And his grandmother, they actually were followers of Jesus Christ. The text tells us that they were believers. But listen, we also know from another New Testament letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, to this young man, that his mother and his grandmother were women who loved Jesus Christ, had a powerful faith. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and he said this. He said, I am reminded, Timothy, of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. And so this is the kind of family that Timothy grew up in. He had a very godly mother who loved Jesus. He had a very godly grandmother who loved Jesus. But Timothy, like so many people who are walking around in the world today, He had a father that did not model for him what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Timothy's dad may have been a nice man. We don't know. But we do know that Timothy's dad did not teach him what Jesus expected out of him. He may have taught him what the world expected out of him. But those are two very different things. And so there was a void in his life. 
And just know this, when there is a very real void in your life, it can create very real problems in your life. You see, a father's influence, it is far more important than most people will ever fully understand. And so if you're a father and you're here, kudos to you for being here. I stood at the back door and just watched a lot of men walk into the room today. I watched some men walk in with their kids and there wasn't a wife that seemed to be with them. And so I just want to say kudos to you for being here. Kudos to you for making faith a priority in your family. Kudos for making faith a priority in your own life. Because when a father doesn't walk with Jesus, it doesn't just affect him, it also affects everyone around him. You see, there is a strong correlation between the way you view your heavenly father and the way you view your earthly father. And so if you grew up with, a, with an earthly father and, and he just didn't seem to care, he, he didn't care about faith, he didn't care about integrity, he didn't care about how you lived your life, he didn't care about church or Jesus, he just didn't care about you. If he didn't care, then it's pretty easy for you to conclude that there's a father in heaven who doesn't really care either. If you grew up with an earthly dad who was a strict disciplinarian, then it's really easy for you to see God as a very strict disciplinarian. If you grew up with a father who was loving and who was good to you and he was there for you, he was very present in your life, it's really easy for you to see God as a God who loves you, he's good to you, and he's always going to be there for you. Listen, there is such a strong correlation between the way you see your earthly father and the way you see your heavenly father that some people believe entire worldviews have grown out of this correlation that exists. And so, the atheist might be the kind of person who would say, I have no dad. The agnostic might be the kind of person who would say, I don't know if I have a dad or not. I mean, I've certainly never met him, if he does exist. The deist might be the kind of person who would say, I mean, I know I have a dad, but he's never really been all that involved in my life. He seems so distant and not very involved in my world. Those who practice liberalism might say, yes, I have a dad, but my dad really lets me do whatever I want, whatever will make me happy, even if it will hurt me. I'm telling you, there is a strong correlation between the way you see your earthly father and the way that you see your heavenly father. And so fathers, your job is not just to provide. Please hear me say that. Your job is to be present, and your job is to parent. And as a parent, dads, you don't just teach your kid how to throw a ball or ride a bike or catch a fish. You need to teach your children how to do life, how to treat other people, what kind of work ethic they're supposed to have. How do you treat your wife? How do you raise your children? How do you navigate challenges? What do you do when things get really, really hard, right? If you don't teach your kids anything else, fathers, teach your kids two things. Teach your kids that following Jesus makes life better, 
and teach your children that following Jesus will make you better at life. If you don't teach them anything else, teach them these things. Be that kind of father for your kids. Because listen, Timothy didn't have a dad like that. But thankfully, he did have a godly mother and a godly grandmother who taught him from the scriptures. Listen, Timothy was constantly being taught all throughout his life because Timothy needed to learn from older people, what am I supposed to do? And so Paul, again, writes about this to Timothy and the instruction that he's received. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said this to him. He said, you, Timothy, however, you know all about my teaching, about my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance. How did he know? Because Paul taught him. What, what did Paul say? He said, you know all about my teaching. You, you know about how to do life. You know about the purpose that your life should serve, right? God created you, Timothy. He put gifts inside of you. He put passions. He's given you life experiences, and I've helped you understand your purpose in life. He taught him about faith. He taught him to be patient and loving with people. Watch that. He taught Timothy to be patient and loving with people, but at the end of the verse, he also teaches him to endure hardship. In the very next verse, he teaches him to endure persecution and suffering. So what is all that about? He is teaching Timothy that at times, the man of God needs to be tender with people. But at other times, the man of God needs to be as tough as nails. It's not one or the other. It is both and. And so he taught him. He gave him these kinds of instructions. But listen, not only was Paul teaching Timothy, his mother and his grandmother were teaching him too. In fact, four verses later, Paul said this in the letter. He said, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy, who was around at infancy? Not Paul, but Lois and Eunice, his mother and his grandmother. They were around from infancy. And he says, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says this, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so Paul taught him. But in addition to Paul teaching him, he had a mother and he had a grandmother who were teaching him the scriptures from the day that he was born. It was a total team effort. And these scriptures that they taught him, they were useful, not just for teaching, but they were useful, it says, for rebuking Timothy. So that when Timothy was in the wrong, Timothy knew 
that he was in the wrong. He knew it's wrong to treat people this way. He knew it's wrong to have these kinds of thoughts. He knew it's wrong to live your life this way. And so it was useful for rebuking him, but it was also scriptures that were useful for correcting him. Let's get off of the wrong path and let's get back onto the right path. And then the text says it was useful for training him so that he may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He, He wasn't just learning how to be a man. He was learning how to be a man of God. And those are two totally different things. And the same is true for our young women. You know it. The world has strong opinions about what a woman is supposed to look like, how she's supposed to act, and how she's supposed to think. There is a major difference between being a woman and being a woman of God. And the way that young men and young women learn what is truly expected of them, not in the world, but from their creator or from the one who is coming to the world to lead their life, Jesus Christ, is they have a mentor who steps into their life, not to undermine mom and dad, but to reinforce mom and dad. And to say, hey, I want to help you understand what God expects out of you so that you know what to do in each and every situation that life will throw at you. Because sometimes the challenge in life is just knowing what to do. But listen, sometimes the challenge in life is having the courage to actually do it. And in order to have courage, you need an encourager in your life. And that's why Barnabas was so great at being a mentor. The name Barnabas, I told you earlier, it literally means son of encouragement. But did you know that Barnabas was not even his real name? See, most people only think of this guy as Barnabas. But if you go back to Acts 4, I think it's verse 36, it actually says that his name is Joseph. But because he lived all of his life just encouraging people, He only became known as Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement, and people forgot his real name. And so last week I was showing you a little bit about Barnabas. Barnabas, he believed in this young man named John Mark, even when the apostle Paul didn't. In fact, if you go back to the end of Acts chapter 15 where we were last week, the story says that Barnabas and Paul, they had such a sharp disagreement that they actually parted ways from one another because they were fighting over this kid, John Mark. See, Paul was frustrated with John Mark because John Mark had deserted them and left them when they were in Pamphylia. But Barnabas argued with Paul over this. He said, look, you can't just write him off because he made a mistake. Like, yes, he showed a little bit of immaturity when we were in in Pamphylia. But Paul, if you're just going to be done with him because he made a mistake or because he was acting like an immature young man, then fine. You go your way and we'll go our way. Because I'm not done believing in this kid named John Mark. In fact, in verse 39 of chapter 15, it says that Barnabas took John Mark And they sailed for Cyprus. They parted ways with Paul and they went their own way. And really, after that, you don't hear a whole lot more about John Mark. 
until years later when the Apostle Paul is coming to the end of his life and the end of his ministry. And he's writing the most personal letter that he ever wrote in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. And he says to Timothy, he says, Only Luke is with me now. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So Paul is now seeing value in this kid named John Mark because Barnabas had poured so much into his life. He had grown him up. He had invested in him. He had encouraged him. He said, you know what, John Mark, you're the kind of guy who you know what to do, but you need someone to encourage you to actually do it. And this young man, John Mark, becomes the kind of man that the apostle Paul says, I need a guy like that by my side. A guy like that makes me better and makes me more effective. In fact, John Mark drew so much that most scholars believe that John Mark is the same guy who actually wrote the Gospel of Mark. One of just four books that we have that record the life and the times of Jesus Christ. So tell me, how did John Mark grow up to be that kind of leader, grow up to be that kind of force in the world? How did he grow up to be a force for good and a force for God in the world? It's because Barnabas encouraged him. Or I might even say it this way, Barnabas invested in him. You see, when you invest your life into another human being, you're saying to them, I believe in you. And so what it does is it motivates them and it inspires them to be far better than they would ever be on their own. Listen, people in the world are battling a tremendous amount of discouragement. And there will be times in every one of our lives when the discouragement is so heavy that we're ready to give up on our dream. We're ready to stop believing in ourselves. And what people need in that moment in their life is an encourager because, listen, encouragement changes everything. John Maxwell actually wrote a book years ago, and that was the title of the book. Encouragement changes everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that a little bit of encouragement can totally change the direction and the outcome of another human being's life? Listen to what John Maxwell actually said in the book. He said, a word of encouragement from a teacher to a child can change a life. If you're a teacher, if you work in the school district, I need you to believe that. A simple word of encouragement from a teacher to a child can change an entire life. A word of encouragement from a spouse could save a marriage. A word of encouragement from a leader can inspire a person to reach their full potential in life. Listen, in order to be an encourager, you don't have to be brilliant. You just have to be in someone else's corner. And this is why I really do believe that anyone on the planet can actually be an encourager. Because all you're doing is you're calling out the best in people. 
You are giving them some perspective that they may have lost during some discouraging seasons that they're in. You're helping them recapture that perspective so that they can see the good that they're doing and the difference that they're making in the world. I'm telling you, when you get into someone else's life and you start instructing them and encouraging them, it can totally change their life. It happened with these two guys. It happened with John Mark and with Timothy. John Mark and Timothy made a big difference in the world because someone else made a small investment in them. And so I just want to know, are you ready to get into that kind of relationship? I mean, we've been talking about it for two weeks now. And I really do believe that that people, their faith and their influence, it will grow best if they're in a relationship. Now, I know, I thought, what are going to be the excuses that that people are going to have in their mind while they sit there and they listen to the message? And so i got a couple I just want to address. One, some of you see the value in this kind of relationship, but you think to yourself, well, I'm not qualified or, you know what, I, I just don't know enough about the Bible. And so I could never be someone else's mentor. Okay? If that's you, I want you to understand a leadership principle called the law of the lid. The, the law of the lid simply says that you will be a lid in your leadership. And so you will never be able to lead people who are higher than you or who are stronger than you, or who are further along than you, but you will always be able to lead people who are lower than you, people who are weaker than you, people who are not as far along in the journey as you. So if you're a seven on your spiritual maturity scale of one to ten, and you're thinking, okay, I'm not really where I need to be, but you know what, I've been in church my entire life, and so I mean, I'm not like at a one, like maybe I'm like at a seven, I'm a little better than average. If that's you, you won't be able to lead an eight, a nine, or a ten until you grow a little more yourself, but you can already lead a six, a five, or a four because of where you are and because of what God has taught you over the course of your faith journey. It's called the law of the lid. You can do it, even though you may not be able to lead people who are higher than you. Others of you may be thinking, you know what, I I see value in this kind of relationship and in what you're talking about, but I honestly just don't have time for it. And I appreciate the honesty there, um, because last week we said that the problem with John Mark, this young man, is he didn't really have the ability to persevere through hard times. He may have been the kind of kid who gave up on them in Pamphylia when it wasn't fun anymore, when things got hard. And, And so I don't want people making commitments that they can't keep, but I also know something about human beings to be true. We always make time for the things that are most important to us. And the reason that most of us won't invest in the next generation is because we're not close enough to be bothered enough. You're not close enough to someone from the next generation to actually be bothered enough that you would actually step up and do something about it. So so you're not walking with any high schoolers who are really thinking about walking away from their faith so that they can chase after something they have no business chasing after. You're not doing life with a young couple who doesn't know if they're going to stay married for even one year of their relationship with each other because they can't stand each other already. 
You're not doing life with people who are a young mom and a young dad who are trying to figure out how, how are we going to make it through this season because this baby won't stop crying in the middle of the night. And because you're not close enough, you're not bothered enough to actually do anything about it. But let me tell you something. If you want your life to make a difference, then you need to get into the life of someone from the next generation. And it's why I'm asking you unashamedly to make a commitment and to make time because this actually matters. I'm telling you, I really believe that a person's faith and a person's influence, it will grow best if you are in a relationship. And so some of you are here and you need a mentor. Some of you are here because you want to be someone else's mentor. Jeremy's going to come out in just a second, and he's going to help you understand how to step into that kind of relationship with the logistics and the nuts and bolts and all that kind of stuff. But before he comes out, I do want to say this. Some of you aren't thinking about mentoring one person. Some of you are thinking, you know what, I'd like to get into the lives of a group of people. Man, if that's you, I want to encourage you to think about signing up to serve in Mo Kids or in student ministry. Because that is an opportunity for you to leave a deep and a lasting impact on a group of young people from the next generation. Listen to what Wes Stafford once said about young people. He said, children are like wet cement. It's easy to leave a deep and lasting impression on their lives. If you want to make a difference, then you need to be a mentor. Step up, stop making excuses, and jump in. I'm telling you, not only will they benefit from it, but it will be one of the most rewarding things that you have ever done in your entire life. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word and for the way that it challenges us. But God, I thank you for the way it also helps us see how people grow in their faith. And so God, for all those people who are here today and they need a mentor in their life, I pray God that they would have the courage to ask for one. For, for all those God who need to step up and be a mentor to someone else, I pray God that they would see the potential that lives in them and I pray God that they would step up today. They would sign up to be a mentor. I pray God it would be some of the most rewarding relationships that are ever formed here at Mosaic and I pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.